You're listening to Jar of Hearts by Jennifer Hillier. Read for you by January Lavoy. Kaiser met Georgina in science class. They were freshmen. It was the first day of school, and the first thing he thought was that she smelled amazing. The second thing he thought was that she was beautiful. Not in an obvious way, like Angela, whose presence could never be ignored, even on her worst day. But in a subtle, underappreciated way. The kind of beauty that isn't trendy or obvious. The kind of beauty that seems plain at first glance until you get to know her better. The kind of beauty that doesn't blossom until well after high school. You can't tell girls like this they're beautiful. They won't believe you. But that's part of what makes them beautiful. Because it doesn't matter. Georgina took a seat right in front of Kaiser, her long, dark hair brushing the edge of his desk as she opened her binder to a fresh sheet of three-hole lined paper. The classroom was only half full, and she had her choice of desks. She clicked a pen filled with purple ink and wrote the date on the paper. September 3rd. She turned around. I'm Geo, she said. Geode, he said, misunderstanding her. What kind of messed up name was that? Like a rock? Geo, she said, spelling it out. Short for Georgina, but I hate that name, so please don't call me that. Why not? It's pretty. You might like it someday. Doubt it. Her name is Geo and she dances on the sand, he sang. He couldn't help it. Like I haven't heard that one before. She rolled her eyes at his terrible rendition of the Duran Duran song, Rio. That song came out when I was, like, in kindergarten. You're just like my dad, a big fan of 80s music. Well, that killed it. No teenage boy wants to be compared to a girl's father. It shut him up, and she turned back around. For the rest of the class, all he could see was the back of her perfect head. Sometimes he'd kick her chair accidentally on purpose so she'd turn around to tell him to stop it. It was stupid, he knew, but he was smitten. The friendship that followed was instant and easy, built on their shared struggle with science and desire to annoy the shit out of each other. He didn't like Angela when Georgina first introduced them. Her best friend bossed her around a lot and would pull her away often to talk about girl stuff, which made him feel like the third wheel he was. But he and Angela grew on each other over time, and by homecoming freshman year, the three of them were inseparable. Oh, he had guy buddies too, but his closest friends, his best friends, were two girls. And they trusted him, told him things about teenage girlhood most boys would never be privileged to know. He was often the voice of reason when they couldn't make a decision on what to wear or eat. The one who could tell them which boys they liked were douchebags and which were okay. The one who played referee when they squabbled with each other, which wasn't often, but when it happened, it was World War III for all of them. He never told Georgina he was in love with her. But Angela knew, and they talked about it a few times. One of Angela Wong's best traits was that she was honest. Unfortunately, it was also one of her worst. She had no problem telling you if your outfit looked like shit, if your taste in music was abhorrent, if you had something stuck in your teeth. She doesn't think of you like that, Angela said to Kaiser one August afternoon, the summer before junior year started. 
They were at the mall and he was helping her shop for some new party outfits, which basically meant heaping effusive praise on everything she tried on. Gio and her dad had gone to visit her grandmother in Toronto for the week and he'd been forced to step in. Like what? As more than a friend. You've been in the friend box for two years. Telling her how you really feel isn't going to change that. All it will do is make her feel bad because then she'll be forced to tell you she doesn't feel the same way. Which, even though you knew it was coming, will feel like she lit a match and set you on fire. And then guess what? Angela turned to him, looking pissed off, although none of this had even remotely happened yet. At the end of the day, nothing will change. You'll stay friends, but now it's awkward. And by awkward, I mean awkward for me. But I really think- Start talking to other girls, she said, pivoting in front of a three-way mirror, her glossy black hair swinging as she turned this way and that. She was wearing a pink dress that looked great on her, but judging by the displeasure on her face, great wasn't good enough. You're a junior now. You're not my type, but you're cute. You'll have girls lining up this year. Start asking some of them out, see how it feels. Angela disappeared a couple of months later. It was hard to believe at first. There was a rumor that she ran away, but that didn't make sense to Kaiser, because his friend had zero reason to leave her life. The only theory that did make sense was that something bad had happened to her, but nobody wanted to accept that. It was incomprehensible. The sudden absence of Angela Wong created a huge hole where she had once been, and the only person in the world who could understand the unique sense of loss that Kaiser felt was Georgina. They should have freaked out about it together, supported each other, held each other up. Instead, Georgina pulled away. It started the Monday after Chad Fenton's party, which was the last time anyone could remember seeing Angela, and the night Kaiser decided to ignore their best friend's advice and take his shot. After that weekend, Gio started avoiding him. It was subtle at first, not returning his calls, sitting in the library instead of eating lunch in the cafeteria, going straight home after school instead of finding him so they could go to the 7-Eleven. He chalked it up to her being upset about Angela and feeling awkward because of their kiss. But a couple of weeks later, it grew worse. She'd change directions if she saw him coming down the hallway. The few times they did speak, her responses were curt. Is it because of the kiss? He finally asked her a couple of weeks later. He hadn't wanted to bring it up, but not talking to her was like not breathing. He cornered her outside the front entrance of the school. He didn't understand any of it. Their best friend had disappeared. Who better to help each other through it than each other? She had laughed at him. Laughed. As if, she answered, and walked away. Over the next month, Kaiser watched, helpless, as she spiraled. In the first few weeks after their friend went missing, Georgina was edgy, skittish, constantly looking over her shoulder as if she half expected that whatever had snatched Angela out of their lives might come for her, too. She was bothered by the rumors, defending her best friend vigorously against stories that Angela left of her own accord, that Angela had a secret boyfriend, that Angela wanted to be famous. By mid-December, Kaiser barely recognized Gio. Her hair was greasy, her skin was broken out. Once, she even ran out of the cafeteria because she had to throw up. She didn't return after Christmas break. 
When he tried calling her house, her father told him that she was being treated for depression and that he'd arranged for her to finish her junior year at home via tutor. They spoke for ten minutes, Walter Shaw telling Kaiser that Angela's disappearance seemed to have triggered feelings of abandonment, loss, and grief from her childhood, as her mother died of cancer when she was five. Kaiser continued to call every few weeks to see how she was doing, but if her father wasn't home, the phone was never answered. On two occasions, he stopped by her house on the way home from school. The first time, Walter told him that his daughter wasn't up for company. The second and last time, nobody answered the door. But as he was walking away, he looked up and saw Georgina's face in the window, peeking out from behind her pink lace curtains, pale, exhausted, and terrified. Whatever she was going through, it was hell. That much was certain. The following September, Gio was back at St. Martin's for her senior year. It was like the previous year had never happened. She seemed quieter and more contemplative, but she was smiling again, looking more or less like her old self, even though she'd gained a little weight. She didn't try out for cheer or volleyball, opting instead to take extra classes to make up for the ones she'd failed in the first semester of the year before. She skipped all of the parties and could be found in the library most lunch periods doing homework. With no extracurricular activities, she was able to work a part-time job after school at Jamba Juice, where she was nice to the customers. He stopped into the store one Saturday midway through the year, forgetting that she worked there. She took his order. How's it going? He asked her. Good, she said, handing him his change, and it was like they were strangers. She turned to make his smoothie. There was no one else in the place. Hey, he said. Hey. She stopped, turned to him, her visor shading her face just enough that he couldn't read her gaze. I'm okay, Kai, she said. That's what you want to know, right? I'm okay. But I'm sorry, I don't want to talk. I don't want to hang out. I have to keep moving forward, okay? That's what's best for me. I understand, he said, his hands on the counter leaning forward. But that doesn't mean we can't still be friends. I lost her too, you know. Or did you forget that part? She walked back to the counter, touched his hand gently, offered him a smile. I know you did. And I am so sorry for your loss. But you remind me of her, okay? You remind me of who we used to be, and I can't be reminded of that. It nearly killed me. So please... If I ever meant anything to you, you'll leave me alone. He left without taking his smoothie, hurt in a way that went much deeper than a broken heart. He didn't know her anymore. That much was obvious. He never tried to talk to her again. He didn't wave to her or even attempt eye contact if he saw her in the hallway at school. Once, when he was with the girl he dated briefly at the end of senior year, she was craving a smoothie, and they stopped in at Jamba Juice. Georgina took their order, the both of them pretending they didn't know each other. Whatever happened to you guys? Weren't you good friends last year? The girl said as they walked away with their drinks. Yeah, he said. We were best friends. At least I thought we were. We see what we want to see, the girl said, sipping her smoothie. Not what's there. Kaiser can't even recall that girl's name now. Rachel something.
Or maybe it was Renee. They'd only gone on three or four dates before it ended over something stupid, the details of which he also can't remember now. But he'll never forget her words that day, which, cheesy and cliche as they were, sounded so profound to his not-quite-18-year-old ears. He knows now what happened to Georgina. He knows why she stayed away from St. Martin's junior year, why she hid at home, why she refused to see him. Nineteen years later, it all makes complete sense, and Kaiser wants to punch himself for not figuring it out sooner, when it should have been so goddamned obvious. You see what you want to see, not what's there. The positive pregnancy test only confirmed what Gio already suspected. Her cycles had always been predictable, every 29 or 30 days. When she missed two in a row, she bought a pregnancy test at Rite Aid, cutting her last class so she wouldn't run into anybody she knew. The directions were pretty clear, and she peed on the stick as soon as she got home, bathroom door locked tight in case she had mixed up her dad's schedule and he came home earlier than she expected. The results were fast, less than 30 seconds. The instructions said it would be either a plus or minus sign, and that any hint of blue in the plus sign meant she was pregnant. The stick was so fucking blue it was almost purple. She wrapped it in paper towels and stuck it at the bottom of the waste bin, then sat on the toilet seat lid and cried. She was pregnant with Calvin's baby. And it wasn't a love child. How could it be when it was rape? She made an appointment at Planned Parenthood for the following week, and then spent the days in between genuinely questioning whether it would be better to run out onto the street and let herself get hit by a bus. When she arrived at Planned Parenthood on a Wednesday morning, having faked sick to her dad so he'd write her a note to get out of school for the day, her appointment had been delayed for about 20 minutes while they dealt with an emergency. It was long enough for Gio to completely freak out. She called her father from a payphone in the parking lot, sobbing, and he came to pick her up. She told him about the pregnancy, how she didn't want the baby, but neither could she bring herself to abort it. She refused to tell him who the father was, other than that he was someone who didn't go to St. Martin's, true, and that she never wanted to see him again, also true. Walter Shaw listened, growing more upset with every word. He told her to go to bed. She did. When she woke up the next morning, her dad was waiting for her at the kitchen table, a cup of coffee in front of him, a cup of herbal tea for her. Whatever you want to do, will do he said, and she burst into tears again. Walter's normally stoic face was filled with anguish. It's because I work all the time and you don't have a mother, right? You wanted something of your own to love? God, Dad, no. Despite her emotional state, Gio managed to roll her eyes. It just, it just happened. Trust me, this wasn't anything I wanted even on a subconscious level. If you were sexually active, I could have made you an appointment at the- Dad, please! Gio knew her face was red. She felt the heat creep up her neck and stop at her eyes. I wasn't sexually active. It only happened one time. She closed her eyes, remembering the weight of Calvin on top of her, her inability to move or draw anything deeper than a shallow breath. No, she hadn't wanted it. Yes, it was rape. No, she couldn't tell anybody. If she told someone and they arrested him, who knew what Calvin would say? 
about Angela, about her. Sometimes karma came for you later. Sometimes karma came for you right away. So what do you want to do? Walt asked her gently. I think adoption makes the most sense. Not that I can imagine giving birth. Oh, God. She shuddered. She couldn't let herself think about that now. But I can't imagine getting rid of it. And I can't imagine being a mom. Her father nodded. It was hard to tell how he felt about what she had said. It would certainly make both their lives easier if she had an abortion. An abortion meant she could finish out her junior year with nobody the wiser. Her body wouldn't have to change, no weight gain, no stretch marks. There would be no painful delivery, no watching someone take the baby, no having to live with wondering what kind of person he or she would grow up to be. She was nine weeks along. It wasn't even a real person, right? But it was. To her, it was. But I can't... I can't go to school pregnant, Dad, she said. I don't want anyone to know. Walt's face was set, but grim. I'll speak to your guidance counselor. We'll figure it out. He cupped her chin with a warm hand. Are you sure about this? If you don't want to have it at all, that's okay. It's your decision, and there's still time. I can't, she said. I, I can't deal with any more death of any kind. Walt assumed she was talking about her mother, which she was, but only to a degree. They agreed she would finish out the first semester, but Gio was so nauseated she was missing school anyway. After Christmas break, she didn't go back. She wrote her exams by proxy, then did the rest of her courses via correspondence and tutor. It wasn't too difficult to conceal her changing body. She carried small and spent most of her days in her dad's old shirts and a pair of sweatpants that she rolled below her belly. If she did need to go out, to a doctor's appointment or to the library, she wore a bulky jacket or sweater. It was ironic to her how she could spend those days with someone else all the time, her baby growing inside her, and still feel utterly alone. It was almost like her pregnancy was the culmination of all her secrets in physical form. By her fifth month, she was working with an adoption agency which passed along several family profiles so she could select the adoptive parents. She interviewed several couples, and while they were all very nice with different degrees of desperation, the couple she liked the most was Nori and Mark Kent. They were 28 and 30, respectively, around five to ten years younger than most of the couples who were hoping to adopt. Nori Kent had something called polycystic ovarian syndrome, which Gio had only heard of because two other hopeful women she'd met with had it too. She liked the couple instantly. They had been together since their freshman year of college, had been married for three years, and had been on the adoption list since then. We know we're young, Nori Kent said. She was Japanese, born in Tokyo, but had grown up in Oregon. Her skin was porcelain and unblemished, her hair long and straight and jet black, falling over her shoulder in one silky sheath. Her eyes were almond-shaped and hazel. But I was diagnosed with PCOS at 21, after I stopped menstruating. Went to several doctors who said it would be very difficult for me to get pregnant. Adoption has always felt right to us. We got on the list because we were told it could be a while before someone picked us, Mark Kent added. He was tall with sandy curls that were beginning to thin a little at the front. 
He had a classic white Anglo-Saxon complexion, pale with rosy cheeks and large hands that gestured when he spoke. We understand there's a lot of competition, that a lot of other couples are older, have bigger houses, have better jobs. Mark taught math at Puget Sound State, and Nori was a buyer for Nordstrom. Normal jobs for normal people. They had recently bought their first house, a small starter home a little north of Seattle. They had an English bulldog named Pepper and a Siamese cat named Kit Kat who bossed the dog around. They showed Geo pictures of the room that would be the nursery. It was at the back of the house with a large window that looked out at the rose bushes in the yard. Nori drove a four-year-old Toyota Highlander and Mark took the bus to work. They weren't rich, but they were in love. There was a deep friendship and a fierce commitment between them. It was in the way he looked at her, the way he touched her hand when she was nervous and speaking too fast. It was in the way she rested her head on his shoulder when she leaned against him, and the way she rolled her eyes at his cheesy jokes. Being with them made Gio feel sad and happy at the same time. I pick you, she said at the end of the two-hour meeting. They were sitting across from each other on matching red love seats in a comfortable room at the agency office. Between them was a coffee table and their family profile book. I'm not supposed to tell you directly. I'm supposed to tell the lawyer who will then tell you. But I've made up my mind and I don't want to make you guys wait. I, Nori began, and then she burst into tears. Are you sure? Mark Kent said. He was staring at Geo in disbelief. Because we understand if you need a couple of days. I pick you, Geo repeated. She stood up, struggling a little to get up out of the deep sofa. Mark reached out a hand, but she waved him off with a smile. Why? Mark Kent asked, his eyes shocked and huge, and his wife turned to him with a look that said, oh God, don't ask her that. What if she changes her mind? Because you remind me of my parents when my mom was still alive, Gio said. It was the best way she could explain it, to herself anyway. She could see that it didn't make a lot of sense to them. Do you promise to love the baby? Yes, they said in unison. Do you promise to love each other? Yes, Mark said, squeezing his wife's hand. Nori nodded, her eyes and cheeks wet. Yes, she said. Okay, Gio said, and she allowed them to step around the coffee table and embrace her. She could feel Nori shaking, the bones in her slender frame vibrating from her legs to her torso, and she squeezed the woman tighter. She gave birth three months later, two weeks early, in a private room at her dad's hospital. The contractions started early Saturday morning and grew increasingly painful until the point where she didn't know if she could get through one more. Then the epidural kicked in and she was able to sleep for a few hours until she was dilated enough to push. Her father stayed by her bedside, although it was Nori she wanted in the room with her in the middle of the night when she started pushing. The spinal block killed all the pain up until the first push, and from there, Gio could feel everything. It was the most unbearable agony, and even though the nurse kept telling her to push anyway, it seemed like an impossible thing to do when it felt like pushing meant splitting wide open. Nori squeezed one hand, her father the other, and Gio pushed and pushed, her hair sticking to her sweaty face in greasy strands, her teeth clenching so hard she thought her molars would crack. Two hours later, she heard the OB say, one more big one, and she bore down as hard as she could, screaming because the burning and pressure was unlike any other kind of pain she'd felt before. 
She heard Nori say, I see the head. And a few seconds later, after a rush of activity, the baby cried. It's a boy, she heard one of the nurses say. Six pounds, 13 ounces. The nurse had the baby wrapped in a white blanket with a blue and pink stripe and a pink and blue hospital hat. It was noted in Gio's file that the baby was going to the Kents, but the nurse still looked at Gio to see if she wanted to hold him. Gio shook her head, lying back on her pillow as Mark came into the room and Nori took the baby in her arms for the first time. Her face crumpled with joy, and she looked over at Gio and mouthed, Thank you. Exhausted, Gio fell into a deep sleep. When she awoke, it was late the next morning. Her father was drinking coffee and reading the newspaper in the small chair in the corner of the room. She was incredibly sore. The epidural had worn off and she felt like she had been run over by a truck. Everything hurt. Her vagina felt like someone had punched it a thousand times. There was a glass vase filled with pink and white flowers near the bed and a letter with her name on it. It's a letter from the Kents, her dad said. Do you want to read it now or later? Later, Gio said, looking down at herself. She was surprised to see she still looked pregnant. She had naively assumed that once she gave birth, everything would snap back to normal, but apparently that wasn't the way it worked. Her belly was still large, but it was deflated, empty. The baby she had carried inside her was gone. She had never seen his tiny face, never held his tiny hand, never got to say hello or goodbye, which was how she planned it. But the ache in her heart was deeper and more painful than the ache in her body. She touched her stomach, feeling the flesh, which only the day before had been stretched firm, yield to her touch. She had a son, and he was gone. She had never known him, never seen him, never cradled him. But the loss of him was as great as if she had loved him and held him and breathed him in her whole life. Daddy, she said, not recognizing her own voice. It was small and fearful, the voice of a child, the voice of a lost soul drifting away who could never be brought back. Daddy, he's gone. The sobs started in her stomach, and her abdominal muscles, already bruised and tender, screamed out in pain as she cried, for the loss of her child, the loss of her mother, the loss of Angela, the loss of the person she thought she was and the person she thought she would be. She had taken a life and had now given a life, but neither act made up for the other. It was a loss multiplied by infinity, the grief of it all feeling like a giant hole that would never, ever be filled. My brave girl, her father said, his own voice cracking and choking as he stroked her hair. My brave, brave girl. In that moment, with her father holding her as tightly as he could, the sobs stabbing and unrelenting, Gio wanted to die. The adoption was finalized 30 days later, during which time the Kents were careful to stay away. Gio understood why. At any point in those 30 days, she could have asked to see the baby, changed her mind, and even taken the baby back. But as the days passed and her body began to heal, so did her spirit. The hole that had ripped open in her soul was beginning to close up, still crazy tender, but no longer a gaping, gushing wound. On day 30, she read the letter Nori wrote to her. 
It was filled with gratitude and love. What you have given Mark and me is a joy unlike any other, and we promise to love him as completely and unconditionally as we know you would have. Thank you from the bottom of our hearts. We named him Dominic John after our grandfathers. She wrote them a letter back on day 31, when the adoption was official. Congratulations to you both. I know you will be wonderful parents to your beautiful baby boy. They did not keep in touch, although they had all agreed to a semi-open adoption, which meant that if at any point Dominic John Kent wanted to speak to her or meet her, she was willing. But it had to be his call on his terms, and she was allowed to decide if she was okay with it. Geo strokes the pile of letters beside her, the ones written on blue stationery, the ones that kept coming in prison that she couldn't bear to read but couldn't bear to throw away. She's read them all several times by now, letters from the son whom almost nobody knew she had. Dominic is now 18, older than she was when she had him. Dear Ms. Shaw, I am your biological son, Dominic. He wants to know her, to talk to her, to fill the gaps in his life that are there despite Gio's best efforts to pick good parents for him. His letters are well-written, full of details that break her heart. How could she have known that when Dominic was five years old, his adoptive parents would divorce? And that Mark Kent would marry the woman he cheated on Nori with and go on to have two biological children of his own with her? And that Mark would eventually give up full custody of his adopted son, whom he hardly saw anymore anyway, to Nori, who would never remarry and instead bring home boyfriend after boyfriend in an attempt to heal the anger and bitterness she felt over Mark's betrayal. And that one of those boyfriends, the last one, would touch Dominic in a way that no little boy should ever be touched. Or that one day, Nori would die in a car crash because her pedophile boyfriend was driving drunk, leaving Dominic in the care of one disinterested extended family member after another, before he finally, inevitably, ended up in the foster care system. How could Gio have known that choosing her baby's parents based on what she thought she saw and on what she thought she felt would all turn out to be lies and bullshit because in the end, people are only out to protect themselves? How could she have known that her son was going to have a terrible life? And that in hindsight, she, a single teenage mother, might have done a better job of raising, loving, and protecting him. How could she possibly apologize to her child for his life? And how could she possibly tell him that his biological father was Calvin James, and that not only does she have his life to apologize for, but his genetics, too? How does she then tell him that his father is killing his children because people like him should not exist? Yes, she knows that Calvin said that, had said it out loud at the sentencing hearing for everyone to hear. She'd read about it in the newspaper while she was in prison. How does she tell Dominic he's in danger? From his father. But she has to. Because there's no one left to protect him now other than Gio. And after everything, after every terrible thing she's both done and let happen, it's the very fucking least she can do. There are people to get in touch with, preparations to be made. But her phone is ringing, and when Gio checks the call display, she doesn't recognize the number. Gee, the familiar voice says when they're connected. 
How have you been? How's life outside Hellwood? Ella, she says, surprised. The inmate must be calling from a contraband cell phone, and Gio's mind begins combing through the possibilities of what the call might be about. Hazelwood's premier drug dealer has a new accountant now, and the transition should have been smooth. Gio made it pretty clear that once she was out of Hazelwood, she was out for good, and she hopes Ella Frank isn't calling to ask her to change her mind. She's not the kind of woman you say no to twice. I'm fine. It's good to be home. What's going on? I can't talk long because I'm calling from the library, Ella says. CO will be back in a few minutes. This isn't a business call. Gio exhales, not realizing until she does that she was holding her breath. Oh, okay. I saw your brother when I got out, gave him all the information. Everything's working out, I hope. He told me you stopped by, and we're all good there. Ella hesitates, and when she speaks again, her voice is softer. Listen, G, I wanted to be the one to tell you. Cat died last night. No. She can't have heard that right. Gio opens her mouth to speak, but nothing comes out. She was found in her cell this morning when she didn't get up for roll call. That can't be. I don't understand. She was supposed to get out tomorrow, Gio says, her mind stubbornly refusing to believe what Ella just told her. I talked to her the other day and she was in good spirits. I was going to pick her up at the bus stop. She wasn't feeling well the last couple of days. One of the girls found her in the bathroom, half passed out, tried to make her go to the infirmary, but she insisted she was fine, that she was just dehydrated and a little dizzy. She died sometime in the night. Ella's voice is filled with sympathy. They think maybe her heart gave out or she had a stroke in her sleep. You know how sick she was, G. Her body was failing. Yeah, but she wasn't supposed to die in there. The words come out sharper and snappier than she intends, and Gio takes a deep breath, trying to calm herself. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to yell. It's just, she was supposed to live here with me. I promised her I wouldn't let her die in there. I promised her. I'm sorry, G. She was a good woman and a good friend. I wanted to make sure you knew. I know they only notify immediate family. She didn't have any immediate family. She had me. Ella doesn't respond to that because they both knew there's nothing she can say. A few seconds pass. Finally, Gio says, what will they do with her body? They've already moved it. From what I heard, her husband is going to have her cremated. Apparently, she left instructions with him some time ago the philandering husband who was divorcing her. The cheating, disloyal husband who was already with someone else. Gio closes her eyes. Thank you for telling me. Of course. You take care of yourself, okay? And if you need anything, you have Samuel's number. The woman drops her voice. I know he got you a piece, but if you need more than that, if you need protection, he'll hook you up. I told him to watch out for you. I know you got stuff going on. I've been watching the news. Thanks, Gio says again, but her voice is hollow. They disconnect and the tears come then, hot and fast and furious. Her body racks with sobs. She's only loved three women her entire life, her mother, Angela, and Kat, in that order. 
and now all three are dead. Enough. Enough already. She can't bring back the dead, but she can protect the people she loves who are still alive. Her son, for instance. The doorbell rings as she's walking into her father's home office, and she peeks out the window to see who it is. It's a police car, and the man standing at her front door is in uniform. Not Kaiser, then. She ignores the doorbell when it rings a second time, and seats herself at Walter's desk. Her father has a laptop that he uses to catch up on work at home, and it's not password protected. As she boots it up, she glances out the window again and sees the police car is still there. The engine is shut off, and the officer inside appears to be talking on the phone. Gio's iPhone rings. It's Kaiser, but she doesn't answer. A few seconds later, a text message appears on the screen. Where are you? Have placed police detail outside your house. Don't be alarmed, taking precautions. We'll stop by later to explain. When you get home, stay home. She doesn't reply. She's already home, and there's business to take care of. Family business. She finds Facebook and logs in, activating her old account for the first time in more than five years. She could have accessed Facebook through her illegal smartphone in Hazelwood, but it doesn't exactly add to the prison experience to scroll through pictures of weddings, new babies, new houses, new puppies. She couldn't give a shit about politics and who was blue and who was red. She didn't care about who had found spiritual enlightenment, who was checked into the gym, or what someone's fancy meal looked like at the fancy restaurant they'd eaten at the night before. She was eating cafeteria food 21 times a week, served on metal plates that were divided into sections. She didn't need to know how the filet mignon tasted at John Howie's, fuck you very much. For the record, she'd had it before, and it was pretty fucking phenomenal. Now it's different. Geo has someone she wants to find. She types in the name Dominic Kent, and at least 50 names from all over the world pop up. Frustrated, she tries Dominic Kent Spokane, based on the address on the letter, and there's nothing. She then tries Dominic Kent Seattle. There are exactly two. The first one can't be him. The man in the profile picture is in his 50s and carrying a hunting rifle. The second one, however, might be. The profile shows a picture of a children's book cartoon character with a long knife through its skull and the tagline, everything is awesome. She clicks on the profile. It's private, no information shared publicly, but it's gotta be him. She sends a friend request and then decides maybe it would help to add a personal message as well. Before she can finish thinking of what to say, a notification pops up. You are now friends with Dominic Kent. And a second later, she gets a message in her inbox. Hi. Wow. You found me. So cool. Gio writes back. Hello, Dominic. I've read your letters. Thank you for writing to me. I'm sorry it's taken so long to get in touch. Dominic. That's okay. I totally get it. So you are out of Hazelwood? Gio. Yes, finally. Dominic, how was it? Prison, I mean. Sorry so many questions, lol. Geo smiles. That's okay. Happy to tell you whatever you want to know. Are you in Seattle? I would like to speak to you, and it's rather urgent. 
I'm happy to come to you or we can meet any place you like. A full minute passes. Gio's heart is beating wildly. Just because he wrote her letters while she was incarcerated doesn't mean he's ready to meet in person. The agreement she made with the Kents 18 years ago was that it would be up to Dominic to decide when he was ready, and that any invitation to meet would have to come from him. Then again, the agreement they had was that they would love and take care of him. So fuck them. Of course, the easiest path would have been to tell Kaiser about Dominic and have him track down her son to warn him about Calvin. But that wouldn't be right. It has to come from her. Dominic finally responds. Is today too soon? I can come there, I have a truck. Do you have family pictures? Is your father around? Would be good to meet him too. Of course he would want to meet Walt. The adoption agency, or maybe it was the Kents when he was little, must have told him about Gio's family, that her mother had passed away because Dominic wasn't asking to meet his grandmother. Gio. He's at work until six, but you're welcome to stay for dinner and meet him when he gets home. I'm at 425 Briar Crescent. It's the house I grew up in, so there are plenty of family photos to look at. Dominic. I can be there in an hour. Can't wait to meet you. Geo. Perfect. See you soon. She prepares as if she's getting ready for a first date with a man she's really excited to spend time with, which is, after all, what this is. She takes a fast shower, blow dries her hair, puts on a little makeup in an effort to look polished but not overdone. She throws on a pair of leggings and a cute sweater she forgot she had. She bustles around the kitchen, applying dry rub to the pork roast she had originally planned to make for Cat. It takes about four hours to cook, so best to start now if they want to eat at a reasonable hour. There's a bottle of mid-priced red wine in the pantry, and she starts to reach for it, only to catch herself and shake her head at her silliness. He's only 18, for Christ's sake. He can't drink, and even if he does, she's his mother. She can't offer him alcohol. Oh, God, she's his mother. The nervousness hits her then, and she goes to the living room to sit down, trying to quell her anxiety. Will he like her? Will he hate her? He sounded friendly enough over Facebook. Articulate, too, from their short conversation. An old white Isuzu pickup truck drives down the street, pulling to a complete stop at the curb outside the house. He's here. The police officer assigned to protect Gio immediately steps out of his vehicle, and Gio opens the front door. It's fine, she calls out to the officer, heart pounding. I'm expecting him. He's family. The officer nods, lifting a hand to acknowledge her and gets back into the car. She's about to meet her son. She waits on the porch with the door open behind her as the driver of the Isuzu slowly gets out of his truck. Hesitant at first, he starts up the driveway toward her, and Gio's hand flies up to her mouth when she sees him up close. She takes a giant step backward, almost tripping over the threshold, unprepared. The man walking toward her is Calvin James. That's all for now. Thank you for listening. Make sure to follow this podcast to get the next episode. Or if you just can't wait, you can buy the audiobook of Jar of Hearts wherever books or audiobooks are sold.